0: Welcome to the GrenZone, dissecting dermatology differently. Here's your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. Hey
1: everyone, and welcome back to the GrenZone. We've had a lot of requests for more peds derm, so here we go with a great pediatric dermatology topic that will also be a great segue into the dermal reaction pattern. We'll be discussing the clinical scenario with a baby or child that comes in for one or few solitary bumps on their skin. These baby bumps have a wide differential that can be benign lesions like calcinosis cutis, but some of them can be dangerous like amelanotic melanomas, or the lesions can be a sign of something dangerous going on, like the triple association seen with juvenile xanthogranulomas and leukemia. In today's episode, we'll go over a nice differential that's easy to memorize and super helpful for these office visits. And like the vasculopathy episodes, we'll discuss a little bit about several disorders, since the main purpose of this episode is to build that solid differential. That way, you're ready when parents bring these kids in with that bump of concern to see you or our pediatric dermatologist, Dr. Binky.
0: Dr. Binky, this bump has been on Johnny's face for a month. This is the quickest your office could get me in. Is this going to interfere with his underwater piano lessons that start next week? Why, Dr. Binky, why?
1: And before we talk baby bumps, I'll mention our disclaimer, that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor does it represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. Okay, so I'm going to break this baby bump differential into three scenarios, one being solitary bumps, two being multiple bumps, and three being rare bumps. When it comes to bumps in a kiddo that tend to be few or solitary, I want you to remember the mnemonic MYSPACE, with M for milia or mastocytosis, the Y for yellow-tinged lesions including juvenile xanthogranulomas, aka JXGs. Then S is for spitz nevi, P for pyelomatricomas or pyogenic granulomas, A for amelanotic nevi or melanomas, C for calcinosis cutis, and E for epidermal inclusion cysts, which, disclaimer, EICs are rarely encountered before puberty. Again, for solitary bumps in a baby or child, I want you to remember the mnemonic MySpace with M for milia or mastocytosis, Y for yellow tinged lesions including JXGs, S for spitz nevi, P for pilometrachomas and pyogenic granulomas, A for amelanotic nevi or amelanotic melanomas, C for calcinosis cutis, and E for epidermal inclusion cysts. When there are multiple lesions, I want you to remember molluscum, trichoepitheliomas, syringomas, and angiofibromas seen in adenoma sebaceum in tuberous sclerosis patients. And as for the rare causes of bumps in a kiddo, remember osteomacutus and dermoid cysts. Alright, I know that's a lot, but we'll slowly work our way through this MySpace differential for bumps that tend to be solitary in babies or young kids. So M is for milia, and it presents as a one to 2 millimeter firm white to yellow papule that tends to favor the central face. They are seen in almost half of infants and tend to resolve in a handful of weeks. Next is M for mastocytomas, which are an accumulation of mast cells in the skin. The mastocytoses take on a wide variety of forms for which three types tend to affect kiddos, including number one, solitary or multiple mastocytomas that we'll discuss today, two, urticaria pigmentosa, and uncommonly three, diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis. We'll discuss these and other adult forms of mastocytosis like TMEP later this season in the dermal reaction pattern so let's talk about the bump in a baby caused by a mastocytoma they present as fleshy to red brown macules papules or plaques that range in size from millimeters to several centimeters this red brown color is a huge clue that you're dealing with the mastocytoses mastocytomas in particular tend to show up on the arms neck and torso with most lesions starting before age one and around 40 percent being present at birth
2: Hey, guys, it's Dr. Binky here with your first question of the day. What is the classic clinical sign that can be performed to confirm the diagnosis of a mastocytoma?
1: This would be the Derriere's sign, which is present in up to 90% of mastocytoma cases, whereby vigorously rubbing one of the lesions leads to erythema and local swelling due to histamine release. Again, the Derriere's sign is present in up to 90% of mastocytomas and means that the lesions turn red and hive up after vigorously rubbing them, which induces a histamine release. As far as management of mastocytomas, we'll discuss the details in depth with the Mastocytoses podcast later this season, but for now, know that lesions tend to self-resolve over the course of years, and that treatment for mastocytomas is centered around symptomatic treatment with antihistamines and counseling on avoidance of mast cell triggers like general anesthesia and polymyxin B. So, that covers milia and mastocytoses. Journeying down the MySpace mnemonic, we'll discuss why for the yellow-tinged lesions including juvenile xanthogranulomas, aka JXGs, which are a type of histiocytic growth.
2: Okay, so what exactly are histiocytes?
1: Before we discuss JXGs, I want to take a minute to discuss what histiocytes actually are, since this term often confused me for a long time. The term histiocyte means cell of the tissue, and while many medical dictionaries use it synonymously with macrophages, there are actually three types of histiocytes for us to know in derm. Number one being Langerhans cells, number two being mononuclear cells and macrophages, and number three being dermal dendritic cells. Again, the three histiocytes of cutaneous importance are number one Langerhans cells, two mononuclear cells and macrophages, and three dermal dendritic cells. Let's start with the Langerhans or Langerhans cells, as they're often called, which should not be confused with Langhan giant cells, which are a type of macrophage. Langerhans cells are antigen-presenting cells that migrate to and fro from the epidermis. When these Langerhans cells go awry, that's when kiddos develop Langerhans cell histiocytosis, which can be deadly and is a full lecture for another day. Then there's histiocyte number two, monocytes, which develop into macrophages when they enter tissues. These macrophages function as both antigen-presenting cells and phagocytes, where they eat and destroy foreign invaders.
0: We go to these conferences, and you know me, I love to present at the podium and I don't eat much. Similar to a Langerhans cell? whereas these damn residents are like macrophages. They present very little, and they spend the rest of their time eating and drinking and going to these gyrating dance parties. And I'm not talking about gyrate erythemas. Not that any of you would know what that is, because you're too busy snap-splatting and chat-snapping and nap-snacking or whatever that ridiculous obsession is called.
1: So remember, Langerhans cells are the antigen-presenting cells in the epidermis, whereas macrophages are antigen-presenting cells that are mostly responsible for phagocytosis in the dermis. Then the third type of histiocyte are the dermal dendritic cells, which have two subtypes, number one being type one dermal dendritic cells, which hang out in the papillary dermis and have a variety of jobs similar to macrophages. Then type two dermal dendritic cells are deeper in the reticular dermis and have an unclear function. So to summarize, there are actually three types of histiocytes for us to know in dermatology. Number one being Langerhans cells, which present antigens in the epidermis. Number two being mononuclear cells or macrophages, which present and eat in the dermis. And three being dermal dendritic cells. Alright, so let's veer back to JXGs, which are a proliferation of the non-Langerhans cells, so they are derived from either macrophages or more likely from dermal dendritic cells. Juvenile xanthogranulomas typically present under 6 months of age as a smooth, dome-shaped papule or nodule that start with a tan to red-orange color, which turns more yellow with time. Again, JXGs typically present under 6 months of age as a smooth, dome-shaped papule or nodule with a tan to red-orange color that turns more yellow over time. JXGs favor the head, neck, and trunk, and around 90% are solitary, and around 20% are present at birth. 90% are solitary, and around 20% of JXGs are present at birth. Although these juvenile xanthogranulomas tend to appear in infants and kids, they can start in adults, so some argue to get rid of the juvenile terminology, but JXG is just way more fun to say than XG, so I'm sticking with it. But anyways, JXGs usually don't cause symptoms, but they can ulcerate from time to time. They can also present in a variety of internal organs like the CNS and lungs, but the most common extracutaneous site is the eye. JXGs affecting the iris can lead to complications like glaucoma or even blindness, so we refer these kiddos with multiple JXGs to an ophthalmologist to rule out ocular involvement, which needs treatment if it is present.
2: You mentioned in the intro about some triple association. What is it? And should you biopsy these JXGs when you see them?
1: There is a triple association between JXGs, neurofibromatosis type 1, and juvenile chronic myelogenous leukemia, aka JCML, which is sometimes referred to as juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia, aka JMML. So let's hear that again. The triple association refers to the association between JXGs, neurofibromatosis type 1, and juvenile chronic myelogenous leukemia. Kids with a JXG and diagnosed neurofibromatosis have around a 20 to 30 times higher risk of JCML, but keep in mind that the vast majority of kids with JXGs and NF don't end up getting JCML. So how does all of this change clinical practice? If you have a kid with a JXG, do a good exam for signs of neurofibromatosis like axillary and inguinal freckling, look for cafe-au-lait macules, and for the bumps of neurofibromas if it is an older kid. And if you have a patient with GXGs and a confirmed neurofibromatosis diagnosis, they may need surveillance for JCML with CBCs or at least regular thorough examinations. And as for Dr. Binke's question on whether to biopsy, it's a great question since there's some variation out there. Biopsy can be done if the diagnosis isn't clear or if there are cosmetic concerns for the child. But most JXGs will spontaneously regress in three to six years with or without pigment changes or atrophy. So some providers will follow the watch and wait method.
0: Dr. Binky, you're telling me we've got to wait six years for this bump to fade on sweet little Johnny's scalp full of hair? We plan on applying to colleges and trying out for the Olympics, and I am not going to let this grantho get in his way.
1: Next, we'll go over spitz nevi, S-P-I-T-Z, spitz nevi, which are a special subtype of melanocytic nevi that tend to occur in kids, and especially on the face. Spitz nevi typically appear as a solitary, smooth, dome-shaped, red-brown papule that's usually between 5 to 10 millimeters. Spitz nevi used to be called benign juvenile melanoma, but over time, we've learned that most of these tend to behave in a benign fashion, and it's definitely not worth scaring parents with that name.
0: So you're saying that this thing is a melanoma, and it's okay?
1: But since spitz nevi can recur after excision and rarely behave aggressively or get mixed up with spitzoid melanomas, they're often treated with excision in clear margins. Treatment is controversial, though, since some argue that spitz nevi only need to be excised if they have atypical features or the presence of 9Q21 deletions that correlate with aggressive behavior. Most PATH labs will do genetic testing on these specimens and make recommendations based on what they find. So, in our MySpace Diffy for bumps in a baby or child, we've covered milia, mastocytoses, the yellow-tinged JXGs, and spitz nevi. Next, we're on to pilomatrichomas, aka calcifying epithelioma of malherb. Pilomatrichomas typically present in kids as a hard papule or nodule that favors the head, neck, and upper arms. They are firm on exam because they often calcify. Their color can vary from fleshy to pink-red or even slightly blue. Pilometricomas are associated with mutations in beta-catenin, and when there are multiple pilometricomas in the same patient, you want to consider an associated disorder. Can any of the residents think of one? Disorders associated with multiple pilometricomas include myotonic dystrophy, rubenstein taybi disease, and Gardner syndrome. Again, disorders associated with multiple pilometricomas include myotonic dystrophy, rubenstein taybi disease, and Gardner syndrome. Alright, next we have another P for pyogenic granulomas, which tend to show up in kids and young adults, but they can occur at any age, including infants. They typically appear as a friable red papule that grows relatively quickly over the course of weeks to a few months on the trauma prone sites of the gingiva, lips, fingers, or face. Many lesions also have a nice collarette of scale at the periphery, which is a nice clue for the diagnosis.
0: Dr. Binky, what causes these pyrogenic granulomas? Is it an allergy? Should we see the allergist? Should he stop drinking milk? Should he stop eating gluten?
1: Patients, and especially parents, will always want to know the why for whatever you diagnose. For pyogenic granulomas, some reported triggers include minor trauma in about a third of cases, pregnancy, and a variety of medications, including systemic retinoids like isotretinoin or oral contraceptive pills.
0: Wait a minute. You're saying little Johnny might be pregnant? I want a second opinion. Uh, No.
1: So let's keep rolling through this MySpace mnemonic. We've covered milia, mastocytomas, the yellow-tinged JXGs, spitz nevi, pyelomatricomas, and pyogenic granulomas. Next, we're moving on to A for amelanotic nevi and amelanotic melanomas. Before we do, I wanna mention that regular melanocytic nevi are obviously on the diffy for a lesion in a kid, but these amelanotic lesions can be tricky so they deserve special attention. As you all know, melanoma is a very dangerous skin cancer. Thankfully, melanomas in kids are rare, and especially rare before puberty, but a significant portion of these childhood melanomas are amelanotic, so rather than having dark pigments, they are simply a fleshy or pink-red papular nodule. Rather than the classic ABCDEs of melanoma in adults, some papers have proposed different ABCs for signs of melanoma in kids. For kids, and especially prepubescent kids, remember A for amelanotic rather than asymmetry, B for bleeding rather than borders, C for a single color rather than multiple colors, D for a small diameter rather than diameter greater than 7 millimeters, and E is still for evolution or changing moles. Again, for melanoma in kids, remember the revised ABCs, with A for amelanotic, B for bleeding, C for single color, D for small diameter, and E still for evolution. In one study, 76% of melanomas in kids under age 11 were amelanotic, whereas 21% of melanomas under age 20 were amelanotic. Yikes. Yikes. In that same study, over 90% of the melanomas were elevated, so remember that moles that are becoming more elevated in a kid should be biopsied. And like adult melanomas, the prognosis for pediatric melanoma is highly correlated with the Breslow depth of invasion and the presence of ulceration, so we gotta catch them early.
2: Okay, so amelanotic melanomas are the thing of nightmares. They can look so bland. Let's talk about less scary and more benign things. What is calcinosis cutis and can you tell me the different types?
1: Calcinosis cutis is defined by calcium deposition in the skin and takes on four main subtypes. Number one, dystrophic. Two, idiopathic. Three, metastatic. And four, iatrogenic. Again, the four main subtypes of calcinosis cutis are number one, dystrophic, two, idiopathic, three, metastatic, and four, iatrogenic. Dystrophic calcinosis cutis occurs after damage to the skin by inflammation or trauma. Again, for dystrophic calcinosis, which starts with a D, think D for damage from inflammation or trauma. Examples of dystrophic calcinosis cutis include calcium deposits seen in juvenile dermatomyositis, crest syndrome, or after heel sticks in neonates. Next is idiopathic calcinosis cutis, which as the name suggests, has no known cause. Examples of idiopathic calcinosis cutis include scrotal or labial calcinosis, along with subepidermal calcified nodules, aka SCNs, which classically appear as a white to flesh-colored papule or nodule in a healthy kiddo less than 2 years old. Again, subepidermal calcified nodules are a type of idiopathic calcinosis cutis that classically appear as a white to flesh-colored papular nodule in kids less than 2 years old. So, that's dystrophic and idiopathic calcinosis cutis. Next, let's quick go over metastatic and iatrogenic calcinosis cutis. Metastatic calcinosis cutis refers to patients who have an elevated level of calcium and or phosphate, which then leads to depositions in the skin. All the other types of calcinosis cutis have normal calcium or phosphate levels, or at least if those patients have abnormalities they are unrelated. Examples of metastatic calcinosis cutis include conditions that are rarely seen in kids, such as chronic renal failure or calciphylaxis. Then lastly, there's iatrogenic calcinosis cutis, which means the lesions were caused by the healthcare providers, such as extravasation of calcium gluconate from an IV site. All right, friends, we're in the home stretch. The E in the MySpace mnemonic for solitary or few bumps in a kiddo refers to epidermal inclusion cysts. These are rare in kids before puberty unless they are associated with Gardner syndrome, which is a form of familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome that I'll include extra details on in the study guide available at grenzonederm.com. Epidermal inclusion cysts present as a nodule on any hair-bearing area. EICs have a central punctum in variant size from a few millimeters to multiple centimeters. Since they represent a cyst with an epithelial lining, they typically require surgery to remove that lining in order to completely remove the lesion. So before we round things out with a summary, I just want to briefly reiterate the other differentials I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. When there are multiple lesions, I want you to remember molluscum, trichoepitheliomas, seringomas, and angiofibromas seen in adenoma sebaceum in tuberous sclerosis patients. Since molluscum is so common in kids, I want to spend some extra time going over it. Dr. Pinky,
0: what in the H-E double hockey sticks are these bumps on Johnny's butt? And if you can't tell me, I'm moving that Yelp review from a two-star to a one-star.
1: Molluscum contagiosum refers to pearly, fleshy to pink papules that are caused by a pox virus. Lesions classically have a central divot or dell, but they can often simply look like small, translucent papules around 2 to 8 millimeters in size. These lesions are super contagious, so although that it can present as a single bump, kids will often have several lesions clustered in areas of trauma or friction like under the arms or in the groin. Because they're caused by this Molluscum Contagiosum Virus, or MCV, kids can pick up the virus from fomites such as door handles and iPads and self-inoculate themselves. For Molluscum patients, it's important to explain to parents that the lesions are caused by this harmless virus that is super common. Kids with atopic dermatitis are especially prone to Molluscum since their poor skin barrier lets the virus in more easily. We also think that since the immune system in atopic dermatitis is in more of a Th2 state, they have less of a Th1 response that typically targets virally infected cells. And speaking of the immune system, a lot of treatments we use against molluscum try to wake up the immune system to target these virally infected cells. Oftentimes, the immune system does this on its own without treatment, making the lesions red, inflamed, and angry. And although lesions can look infected in this scenario, it's actually a great sign that some dermatologists call the boat sign, spelled B-O-T-E, and standing for the beginning of the end, since the immune system has found the virus and it's in the process of removing the lesions. As far as the treatment for molluscum goes, in the interest of time, I'll simply mention that cantheridin, topical amicumab, tretinoin, and oral cimetidine are common treatments used for molluscum when parents seek this out. Good skin care for atopic dermatitis patients also improves the skin's barrier function that keeps the molluscum out. All right, so that does it for bumps in a baby or a kiddo. Let's quick hit the summary. For bumps in one of these patients that tend to be few or solitary, I want you to remember MySpace, with M for milia or mastocytosis, the Y for yellow-tinged lesions including juvenile xanthogranulomas, S for spitz nevi. P for pyelomatricomas or pyogenic granulomas, A for amelanotic nevi or amelanotic melanomas, C for calcinosis cutis, and E for epidermal inclusion cysts. Remember for mastocytomas that most lesions start before age 1 and around 40% are present at birth. Up to 90% of mastocytomas will have a positive derriere sign. For JXGs, remember the triple association between JXGs, neurofibromatosis type 1, and juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia, a.k.a. JMML. Pylomatricomas are associated with mutations in beta-catenin, and when multiple pilomatricomas are present in life or on the boards, think about myotonic dystrophy, rubinstein tabie disease, and Gardner syndrome. And then lastly, remember that calcinosis cutis comes in four main subtypes. One, dystrophic after damage or inflammation. Two, idiopathic, such as subepidermal calcified nodules seen in kids. Three, metastatic with elevated levels of calcium and or phosphate. And four, iatrogenic. All right, thanks for tuning into this episode. That will be a nice segue into the dermal reaction pattern. I want to end today's episode with a thought-provoking quote from Dr. John Lucas during one of his graduation speeches he gave during my residency. Medicine will take everything you're willing to give it and never say thank you. It will always ask for more. And now this is me talking. I want to remind you all, yes, work hard and do a great job for your patients, but also set boundaries with your time and learn to say no on occasion. You deserve time for yourself and your family deserves as much time as you can offer them. So keep doing your best to strike that balance and don't beat yourself up when life does get busy. It's always a process, but you need to be mindful and purposeful in protecting your time for what matters most to you. All right. Thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students in residence with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This
0: episode is copyright 2021 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.